This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 31 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by my next awesome guest. He is a developer at Google and the creator of Fastlane. It's Felix Krause. Welcome to the show, Felix. Hey, John. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. So uh, you are in New York right now, but you don't live there permanently, do you? That's right. That's right. I have this setup where I would move to a new place every single month, basically. And the reason why I started this is because I didn't want to like decide on a neighborhood in New York City because there's so many. And I was actually inspired by Orta from Atsi yeah. um, to, to do that. And yeah, I finally started doing that. So I move every month and I'm very flexible when it comes to like um, moving to new places. That's really cool. So how do you find like the different places to live? Do you use Airbnb or do you actually get apartment rentals or how do you usually go about that, those things? So most of my friends know about my setup. So if they're, let's say they move somewhere else, they just ask me to take over like the last few weeks of their lease so I can help them out. Um, also, at the same time, I use Airbnbs, of course, and like as emergencies, I would also use hotels. It hasn't come to this, but like if I don't find an Airbnb, I would probably just stay in like a cheap hotel. Right. Yeah. It's always good to have a backup, right? Yeah. And uh, what's really fascinating about your setup, I think, is that you even have a website where people can actually track you, where you are, uh, what you're eating even, uh, where you're going next. And uh, it's uh, whereisfelix.today, which is a great use, I think, of those like new domain extensions. Yeah, that's right. That was a fun side project. Uh, initially, I just wanted it to show the city I'm in right now, but I expanded the website whereisfelix.today to show my upcoming travels, my speaking schedule. It shows my macro intakes, like what I ate that day, uh, because I track it using my fitness pal. And so it's just like a, a bunch of stuff. And I used it to learn JavaScript and TypeScript. I just wanted to build like a little node application. And also I wanted to use this new uh, service called SiteNow, which is kind of like Heroku, but new and optimized for JavaScript. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, it's always good when you're learning a new technology like that. It's always good to have like a concrete project, right? Where you want to build something and you can learn kind of along the way. Yeah, just so much more fun to learn something new by doing that and having a goal in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at your travel schedule here, you're quite busy. You are traveling to Austria, the back to the US, then South Korea, China, Serbia. So uh, you're doing a lot of traveling. Yes, yes. So not all these flights are booked yet. Um, I don't know if I'm actually going to Asia. But the other places I'm going to, most of them for conferences and some of them for vacation, actually. Even you take vacation every once in a while, right? Yeah, so I'm actually taking my first vacation next week. Uh, first time not having any like Mac with me. Oh, nice. That's going to be good. I did one of those uh, just a few weeks ago. I kind of completely went off the grid for a couple of days and just relaxed. And yeah, sometimes you really need to do that, right? Especially in the kind of busy lives that many developers are living with Slack and Twitter and all that stuff. So sometimes it's good to go into airplane mode for a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you are the creator of Fastlane, which I think a lot of people already know about. But for those who don't know about it, can you give a little bit of just a bird's eye overview of what Fastlane is and kind of what problems it aims to solve? Yeah, sure thing. So 
Fastlane is basically an automation tool for iOS app developers. So think about when you do things manually, uh, for example, generate screenshots or like upload an app to test flight, stuff like that you usually do manually and Apple up until now didn't provide an API. So with Fastlane, you can automate every single aspect. So it's definitely useful for larger applications uh, that have multiple team members because it allows you to have a centralized deployment process instead of having that one person or that one document that explains how to release an app. Um, so that's basically Fastlane in a nutshell. It does a lot more than that. Uh, I think we had about four or 500 integrations with various services like push notification or crash reporting services and so on. Uh, that's basically Fastlane. It's, it's open source, it's on GitHub, it's completely free to use. Um, and it's currently being maintained by, by Google. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And uh, I've used Fastlane so much, like so many other people. And like you say, it's, uh, it's such a nice tool once you get it integrated because uh, you really eliminate so many areas where things can go wrong. We've all been in the situation where, you know, you need to release the app before you head home or something, or you need to ship a new beta and things just break, you know, code signing doesn't work and all those stuff. And yeah, Fastlane is a really a really a nice tool to solve so many of those problems. So Fastlane hasn't always been maintained by Google. In fact, it's been with Twitter, uh, where you worked before. And before that, you were kind of maintaining it on your own. And you were, of course, using the help from the community and all the open source contributions. Uh, but I think that the story of Fastlane, like the, the origin story, is very inspiring and uh, quite fascinating. So, so can you take us back in time a little bit to when Fastlane actually started and uh, what kind of happened from there? Yeah, so I started my own startup that built like apps for sport clubs. And so instead of building, you know, a new app for every single sport club, um, we would have a single code base uh, with different, like multiple apps with different content, but it's the same code base. And I wanted to be able to work on that code base and then push changes for all of our apps at once. I didn't want to spend time manually updating each one of them. Right. And in particular, I wanted to like be able to change the design of the application and then have that be reflected in the screenshots on the App Store page. So I kind of like started automating those things in a very hacky uh, fashion. Like it was really just like a bunch of shell and Ruby scripts uh, to get it to work somehow. And then after a while, like the startup itself wasn't super successful. But people were really impressed with how I can just like push a button and submit a new app to the App Store without a single manual interaction. Right. And so I kind of decided to take that knowledge uh, that I got and build an actual product around it. And initially, Fastlane was very, very small. Initially, it was actually a tool called Deliver that still exists that was just about uploading binaries and metadata to iTunes Connect. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's how it started. And then I went from one problem, one problem to the next one. Like I noticed that taking screenshots is still a pain. So I built a tool for screenshotting. Then I broke my push certificate. So I wrote a tool that does push certificates. And then like more and more tools uh, are published. I noticed that every developer who uses them kind of like has, has a shell script that calls each of them. And so that felt a little inefficient to like, have people have their own shell script. So I wrote Fastlane that initially wasn't supposed to do a lot. It was more like a name for the collection of tools and a way to kind of connect them. One of the main reasons, I don't think I ever publicly mentioned this anywhere, 
But one of the main reasons why I wanted to have a super tool name kind of is to get featured in iOS Dev Weekly again. That was always like one of my goals when I launched something <laughs> new. Nice. So um, iOS Dev Weekly definitely helped like three, four years ago, helped a lot to reach a lot of developers. So anyway, um, so that's, that's how Fastlane, the actual tool, came to be. Yeah, that's really cool. And I remember in the beginning, uh, all the different tools were even separate repositories, right? That's right. And uh, you would just kind of use Fastlane to connect them and uh, yeah, run them all kind of one by one, while now you have a little bit more of a kind of integrated uh, package and you have a monorepo, right? Yes, that's right. It was also multiple Ruby champs, like they were actual separate, actually separate tools. Mm -hmm. And that made sense in the beginning, but obviously from today's perspective, people use Fastlane to do X, like they want to deploy a beta version or they want to run tests. So it just doesn't make sense to have them separated nowadays. Yeah, there's another one of those kind of, you know, as a project grows and also you as the creator and the maintainer probably didn't foresee all the different ways people would end up using this tool, right? And asking for new features and all that stuff. So I guess that has also fed into your design process. Yes, absolutely. Definitely grew and grew and like it was never designed to be as big as it is now. No, I think that's uh, that would be hard to foresee, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then something really interesting happened. So you were working on this, uh, you know, as your own kind of thing, but then uh, Twitter acquired this. So you took your things, you moved over to San Francisco and you started working for Twitter and then later Google. So uh, this, I think, is for many people working on open source and they have their own project, they started something. Uh, I think this is pretty much the dream, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Where you get like funded by a big company that can enable you to work uh, full time on your kind of passion project. So how did this happen? Like, how did you manage to be able to work full time on Fastlane with such a big company backing you? <laughs> yeah, that was that was tricky, and a lot of luck was involved also. So basically, at some some point. Uh, a product manager from Twitter, in this case, like Fabric, the Fabric developer tool set, mm -hmm. reached out and it was like, hey, like what you build with Fastlane is really cool. Uh, let's jump on a call and like talk about how we can better integrate. And that made sense because Fastlane integrates with all these services, including like Krishnatics and Krishnatics Beta. So we jumped on a call and at some point it became more and more clear that this product manager kind of like wanted to work together more closely. Right, he had like an ulterior motive. <laughs> yes, and it took me a while to pick that up. Also as a European, uh, picking up those hidden messages uh, when you don't live in the United States is a little tricky. Right. Um, so that took me a while. But yeah, so they, they basically proposed that I would join Fabric with Fastlane and kind of like keep working on it. And obviously a big company always needs a justification for everything they do meaning that they cannot just hire an open source person to work on open source. There's always a reason there. If you think about, let's say, Google working on Chrome and the Chrome rendering engine, there's a bunch of people working on it. But obviously, Google benefits from it, right? So that's why it can be open source, because they use it for all this stuff. Yeah. And so it was kind of the same with Fastlane, right? Like Fastlane is open source, and it stays free and independent, but it does help promote, let's say, Dix as a crash reporter. If you look at the docs, it will just be the first one to be listed. Like, you can still use it with any crash reporter, but it's just like having the small preference and having the goodwill from developers um, is already enough in this case. Yeah, and also kind of having the blessing from the Fastlane team and uh, having that as the kind of preferred choice really is very powerful, right? Where if you go and you 
you install Fastlane and then you're looking for a, for a crash reporting service, you're probably going to look for the recommended one, right? Like at least for starters and having that be something like Crashlytics is, you know, is, is, is definitely going to help them a lot. Yes, yes. So that was how I joined Twitter. And then one and a half years after joining Twitter, we kind of got acquired by Google. Uh, that was not Fastlane specific, but that was the whole of the Fabric developer tools department. Right. So Google acquired all of Fabric, which included Crashlytics, Crashlytics Beta, and Fastlane, and a few other things. Um, so January last year, we all got moved over, uh, which for Fastlane is a good thing because Google is just like a lot bigger. They have a lot of other services to integrate with. Uh, they support Fastlane really well. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been a good thing for Fastlane. Yeah, sounds really, really good. And it's very interesting also with Google, like with Firebase and all these other developer tools that they're working on, they're really getting very much into the iOS tool space, right? Like, which is something that many people maybe didn't expect, where maybe they expected Google to focus more on Android, but here we are, you know, we have Fastlane, we have Firebase, we have all these things for iOS as well. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I also thought after the acquisition, like, oh, are they gonna, do they want me to focus more on Android? But turns out, well, Android is already a Google product, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. we we can actually be very helpful, uh, help Google understand how iOS developers work. So we can we can we can help them with that, and we can help with goodwill because like Google still has other services where they actually make money off, uh, obviously ads, but also Google Cloud um, that we want people to use. Cool. So besides your work on Fastlane and all of the open source things that you've been doing, uh, you've been also lately getting a bit into security research and you've been uh, exploring many different things like, for example, how malicious actors could potentially fake the iCloud sign-in dialogue or how some of the implications that could happen when you grant access to the camera and an app can kind of do some sneaky things in the background. Uh, so first of all, like, what kind of made you get started with this kind of security research? Like how did that come to be one thing that you were like passionate about? Yeah, that's a good question. So initially I uh, learned a bunch of like the OZ layers and the basic networking I learned in school and I always hated it. I was like, why do we need to know <laughs> the TCP IP stack that seems like useless because you can just send HTTP requests like this. Uh, but turns out there's a reason why those things exist. Um, and I, I kind of started looking into it. I believe it was because of cryptocurrencies. I was playing around with cryptocurrencies, uh, and I wanted to make sure that, like, that, you know, those bitcoins don't get stolen, right? So I, mm -hmm. I did, uh, more research on, like, how, how to do these things, and I got really fascinated. And I, uh, the main shift that happened was that I understood that every piece of information that you don't explicitly give to someone, is usually already sensitive. So for example, if you access a website in a Wi-Fi, even if it's encrypted, everybody in the network can see what host you're accessing. So yeah. if you're on facebook.com or reddit.com, they will only see Facebook or Reddit, which would be fine. They don't see what subreddit, for example. But as soon as you click a link that's external and on a different host, that host again is public. So that's just one example of how uh, these things might be problematic. Uh, and one example where this got uh, applied to on iOS is that the bookmarks, for example, the bookmarks you have on your iPhone, they have a FEF icon, this logo that is being shown in Safari. And mm -hmm. turns out the iPhone doesn't cache it for really long and they refresh it basically every day. Um, so what happens is that the bookmarks you maybe stored 
like seven years ago, eight years ago, that was the case for me, uh, of some like um, some some host, like it's still gonna be accessed every time you use your phone and every Wi-Fi you are in. So what does that mean? That means that these bookmarks could potentially like track you and things like that? So they could potentially track you, yes, with um, using the IP address, but also the other way around that the Wi-Fi providers and other machines in your Wi-Fi can see basically what bookmarks you have on your phone. Huh, that's very interesting. So uh, when you do these kind of uh, research projects and uh, you have an idea, let's say, you know, you, you have a suspicion that uh, you could fake the iCloud sign in dialogue or that uh, bookmarks make these requests or iOS makes, th- makes these requests on the bookmarks behalf. How do you usually approach like in- the investigation? Like, uh, do you build a proof of concept or how do you usually go about these things? Yes, you always need a proof of concept. You always need someone where you can actually show that you can do something harmful. Uh, The reason for that is that often you think, oh, I should be able to do a certain thing. But then sometime later you realize, oh, like they actually thought about this. One example was that I noticed that the VLC media player on Mac would check for updates using unencrypted HTTP. And so I was like, oh, so I can just like, send back information about a different high-checked VLC version and it will download that. And it actually worked and I was really excited. I was like, oh my god, I can like just like <laughs> install a modified version of VLC. But turns out that the very, very, very last step, right before it would like replace itself with the new version, it would compare the signature and make sure the app is signed and that it's signed by the same key. So it turns out like very often there is some kind of system in place uh, so you have to make sure to go all the way through to be able to blog or tweet about it, right? So that's that's the first step. Right. Um, and once I have a proof of concept, I would usually do like screen videos or like screenshots and prepare a whole blog post about it. And that's really important because you want to be able to explain why this is a big deal. Like very often I still see tweets from people that say like, oh, I don't need HTTPS on this website for my developer tool because there's only documentation. But like that's already critical information because otherwise people can just like replace links with something else and like hijack the whole website. Yeah, exactly. Because very often, for example, in the documentation, you will have links to downloads, right? You will have like, get the latest binary here. And if they manage to man man in the middle attack the documentation, they could just point uh, that link to their own malicious software, right? Yeah. And it's so easy to do that um, as soon as it's unaccredited HTTP. All right, we're going to uh, come back to the security topic a little bit later in our Q&A section. Uh, But for now, let's go ahead and jump into our main topics. So on this episode, we want to talk about automation, of course. We want to talk about Fastlane and how Fastlane, you know, solves some of these automation issues and how it can be a really powerful tool. Uh, We also want to talk a bit about building developer tools like as third parties, like how can we as our own developers uh, build our own tools and open source them. And then finally, we want to talk a little bit about third-party SDKs and kind of some of the thinking that could uh, go into uh, whether or not you select a certain third-party SDK. Uh, But to kick things off, uh, let's just answer the very basic question, which is why should anyone care about automation? Like, why do we feel that it's a good idea to automate certain tasks? So, Felix, what do you think? Why do you usually automate stuff? Yeah, I recently saw this really fun drawing again where you would see two people carrying something really heavy themselves and then you see someone else offering them basically a, a, like a car with wheels. Uh-huh. Like, hey, are you interested in using that? 
And like, no, can't you see we're busy carrying stuff here? <laughs> and I think that's a really right. good, uh, a good uh, drawing on like how, how it actually works. But with automation, obviously, you have to be careful, right? Like, it's not always worth automating it. Uh, it's a combination between engineers actually like automation. Uh, sometimes we probably over-engineer things and it would be easier to do things by hand. But yeah, back to your question, like why should you automate things? I would say it's not only about the time save, that's pretty obvious, but it's also about putting knowledge in actual like scripts and configuration files is really valuable. Right. So until now, people have, let's say, Google Doc with a list of things to do for release. And like as the company gets older and older, there'll be more and more stuff. And at some point, it's like a free pages document on like you have to increase the version number here. You have to tell this person about this release and like all these things. So as soon as you automate it, that's when it gets really powerful because suddenly it's very clear of what has to happen for a release. And if the person who usually does the releases is on vacation or if they quit, it's not a big deal. You have everything in version control. Yeah. I would say that's like one of the most underestimated advantages of automating stuff yeah yeah i think everyone has worked in a company where it's like there is some documentation but there's always holes in the documentation right and just like with code documentation if you can minimize the amount of actual text you have to write and focus on making your code more like readable and easier to understand uh, if you can make your release process the same way instead of relying on like a, you know, a, a document or something that often gets outdated or there's holes in it and things like that to actually get that information into the tools themselves, uh, that's usually way easier to control. Yeah, yep. And at the same time, it's like less error prone, right? Like if you have automation set up, most likely if you did a good job, it will work every single time. If you do things yeah. manually, people forget stuff, right? Like something you forget to like do this little checkbox thingy. It's usually, at least for iOS, like it wasn't common to automate things. And I feel like, you know, there's more and more going on. Like I remember I've been doing iOS development for a really long time and just basic stuff like unit testing um, hasn't been around for too long. Like not as long as you would expect. Uh, right. But when I started iOS development, it was actually really annoying to set up automated unit tests. And uh, it's one of these things where after a while you kind of get used to, uh, it's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome, right? <laughs> where mm -hmm. you kind of get used to manually doing things, manually testing things, and that's just the way things have always been. But then once you actually try to automate some stuff, uh, it can be a big eye-opener to see, wow, you know, I can get all this time back and also it can be way more enjoyable to work on my app. So usually uh, my kind of candidates for automation, like if we look at automation and, you know, uh, try to decide what you want to automate, usually I look at kind of three things. And the first thing is, are you doing this a lot like repetitive? Is it very repetitive work? Uh, is it error prone? Like you mentioned earlier, like could a human make a lot of errors here? It's probably better than to let the machine do it. And then finally, if it's boring, like we, all of us, or most of us who are developers, we are developers because we enjoy it, right? Like we, we actually really like our jobs and we don't want to do boring things. We want to do fun things, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. We want to build that next cool feature, the next cool UI, not worry about code signing. Um, so if something fits those three uh, kind of criteria, that's usually when I personally automate things. That's that's um, a pretty structured list. I've never thought about it that much. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think it's really good when it comes to like w w what it is for iOS, like one of the most common use cases, I would say. And one, some of the easy ways to get started is just like 
for example, localized screenshots. Like if your app has 15 languages and you have, I don't know, five device types, it's just a lot of screenshots you have to generate. Yeah. And doing those manually is a pain, obviously. I feel like nowadays it's uncommon for iOS developers themselves to do them, but it's often like a marketing department that does it. Yeah. But yeah, you, you can help them out and you will make them very happy if you automate that process. Yeah, and you also reduce the risk of, you know, these screenshots that don't match reality, right? Yes. Because very often Apple actually rejects apps that have screenshots that don't look like the app. And uh, if the marketing department does it, like if they do it in Photoshop or something, it's not necessarily going to be the real thing. Yeah, that's right. And every time you change the design of the app or like you want to have the latest content um, or new, the new version of iOS gets released, like every single time you have to take the screenshots pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And uh, screenshots is one of the things that Fastlane does, right? You have a tool in Fastlane for uh, generating screenshots, for adding frames to them and things like that. And I remember that was actually the very first uh, Fastlane tool that I used. Uh, but uh, since then, of course, um, Fastlane has uh, come uh, a very, very long way. So what are some of the other tasks that Fastlane can let you automate? Well, one other main use case is on CI systems. So Fastlane is pre-installed on, on Circle, on Travis, on Bitrise, and so on. Um, so just running tests on a continuous integration server is a very common use case. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds easy, right? It's just running an Xcode build command. But turns out Apple makes it actually really difficult to run tests and parse the results, right? Because you yeah. get it in this weird format and all that. So Fastlane does a lot of the heavy lifting of like choosing the right scheme or if the scheme isn't shared... I don't know why this is still a thing, but if the scheme isn't shared, like you cannot run tests from the command line and then parse the test results and convert it to a usable format, uh, stuff like that is all being done by Fastlane. Yeah. So running tests is one, screenshots is the second one, and then, of course, there's beta and app store deployment. So uh, from Fastlane's perspective, it's about the same thing, but beta deployment is usually deployment to, let's say, a Crystal beta or a hockey app or test flight. Uh, which people run once a week, once a day kind of thing. And then App Store deployment is obviously the App Store uh, deployment to production. So this is interesting because in theory, Fastlane can do every single step from an empty Apple developer account to set up code signing, create a new app, and publish it, like upload the app and publish it to the App Store. Like every single step. You don't need any manual interaction except for a license agreement. Uh, and Fastlane can only not do that because of legal reasons, obviously. Fastlane can't read the license agreement for you. <laughs> uh, well, somebody could build a plugin. Um, I might have built one that accepts all license <laughs> agreements, but I cannot publish it. So, right. um, yeah, it, it's actually a real issue for companies with a lot of accounts. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so anyway, yeah, the apps deployment uh, is obviously very common. And one interesting note uh, is that most people I talk to, they don't let Fastlane do the last button press, which is like, release this version. Like, they always want to be the one doing the last, last, last push. They want to press that button. Why is that, you think? Oh, it's just like, you trust machines, but also when it comes to like, apps to deployments, if you mess something up, you're kind of screwed because you have to wait for another review, right? So they kind of want to go to iTunes Connect and make sure the screenshots are all good, the description is all correct and then select the binary and publish. Right. And it's also like a satisfaction kind of thing, right? Where you actually get yeah. to push the button. You're like, I'm, I shipped this. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's that, yeah. <laughs> so um, 
I want to run like a hypothetical by you. So one kind of big question when it comes to automation is return of investment, right? Like we discussed a little bit earlier, where it's like some developers, you know, probably ourselves included, we're very excited about automating things. And sometimes we can go a little bit too far, you know, where maybe we're automating too much or we're spending too much time on something that maybe, you know, we're not going to get that return of investment uh, from. So Let's say that someone comes to you and uh, pitches a new idea for Fastlane, like a new feature or a new way of using Fastlane that should be like built into the tool. So how do you kind of decide on whether or not that's worth pursuing, like uh, whether or not that's worth actually building into Fastlane? So right now with Fastlane, the way we handle it is that we build the plugin system for that. So we, we, Fastlane itself already covers so many areas that we kind of don't want to expand the feature set, but they want to make sure Fastlane is really good at what it's doing because that's what people use it for. So when someone proposes a new feature, usually the response would be, hey, you could build a plugin for that. Right. And the cool thing about the plugins is that you still get exposure because you're listed on the Fastlane docs, like on Every, every week it like, or every other day it like refreshes and it shows all the plugins. Each plugins, even each plugin even gets a score. So we, we nice. take certain things into account, like the number of contributors, the number of, of downloads, uh, if it has a good readme, the license it uses and all this, these things. So you get exposure, you build your own plugin, it's your name next to that plugin, right? And then mm-hmm. if it's a really good plugin and we see a lot of people using it, we would actually reach out to the author and ask if they're interested in merging it into the Fastlane main code base. And that happens, for example, with the, one of the code signing actions that was built by Helmut, another Austrian iOS developer. Uh-huh. So it was like a simple plugin that would enable or disable the automated code signing that was introduced in Xcode 8, I believe, or Xcode 7. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we took it over to Fastlane Core, and now it's being used by a lot of people. Cool. And the reasoning there was because it was so common, right? Like so many people were running into this issue that it was worth actually pulling it into the core of the of the project. Yeah, that's right. And because obviously for me, I spend all this time working on automation, but I work much, much less on building iPhone apps nowadays, right? Right. So these are one of the things that I just didn't know about. I, I knew that, that the button would exist, but I was just like, well, people would just press it once, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, so obviously... For me as a maintainer, I'm going to miss new trends when it comes to like new things that have a need to be automated. So I need the community to be like, hey, Felix, this is a big issue. We built this plugin or we built this proof of concept. Uh, what do you think? So that's definitely very much needed to make sure fasting is useful and stays up to date. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I love how a new feature begins its life as a plugin, which still is like a first party citizen in a way because it gets listed in the docs. But then you can kind of evaluate that and see how people use it and then, you know, make a second iteration and pull it into the main repo if required. And it allows, you know, it allows the actual creator of the plugin to be completely independent and flexible. Yeah. Like if we don't have time to review a change that's made on a building action, they can still just like you know, it's their own thing, it's their own repo. So they can move completely independently and can move fast. So that's something we, for example, talked with Microsoft about. They have Microsoft App Center, right? And they have some integrations. And so I reached out to them and said, like, hey, like, you should have these as a plugin so you can move without us. We don't have to review your code. Right. You can do your own thing. And I, I think they were really happy about this. 
Yeah, that sounds really good. Because one really common problem uh, in open source projects in general is that you have these bottlenecks, right? And I know that I have definitely been a bottleneck many times for my open source projects when you have to go through the review, you know, you get need to get everything merged into master. Uh, and that can be really tedious as well if you're contributing to something. So having like a plugin architecture like this, I think can be really, really good in so many ways, not only for flexibility, but also just for enabling people, like you say, to work more autonomously on their own thing. Yes, yes. I think that's very critical. Cool. So one thing that uh, Fastlane also does, which is uh, one thing that a lot of iOS developers I know are struggling with, or they don't really understand it, they think it's complicated and annoying. And we're, of course, talking about everyone's favorite thing, code signing. <laughs> and I know that you even call yourself a professional code signing resolver, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, what is it with code signing that is so difficult? Uh, and uh, how come that you kind of chose to um, to address this problem with Fastlane? To be honest, I'm surprised code signing is still a thing nowadays. I thought that <laughs> yeah. after Fastlane was published that Apple would react faster and be like, oh yeah, actually maybe code signing doesn't make sense. And a lot of people say, oh, code signing is needed for security reasons, right? Like there's a lot of, code signing itself is a great concept, right? You you sign your, your app and uh, Apple has to sign it also, and then it can be installed on each person's phone. And the phone verifies that the signature is valid. Like, all of this is great. The yeah. problem is the way it's implemented when it comes to the, to the development cycle. The fact that you have to code sign on a local machine is actual nonsense because Apple basically resigns your app anyway once it gets approved. So, basically, most of the Fastlane tools have this basically proof that it's irrelevant because all you have to tell Fastlane is your Apple ID, uh, the app identifier you want to use, and the target is an app store or ad hoc or development. And Fastin figures out the rest. And if that's all the information you need, Xcode could ask for the same information. Right. Like they don't have to expose all that code signing nonsense to the user. And so I I believe like the way it's built, they should always support the old way of doing it. But long term, what's going to happen is that Apple's just going to ask for your Apple ID credentials in Xcode and have to automate the code signing and they're going to sync the, the keys for you. Um, or even better, but I don't know if they're going to do that, is to completely move it into the cloud. So instead of signing manually, just use two-factor to like sign an application locally. Yeah. So by logging into Xcode locally um, and then uploading a binary, it could ask for the two-factor code again. Uh, and Apple recently forces started forcing two-factor for dev accounts, for new developer accounts. Um, they could achieve the same effect um, without putting so much burden on us developers. Yeah, because code signing has always been one of those things where, you know, first of all, it's a major kind of uh, roadblock for a lot of developers learning how to build iOS apps. But it's also is one of those things that's always, you know, been sticking out a little bit. It's always been way more kind of low level or way more just detail oriented than a lot of other tools. Like for example, to build UIs, we have interface builder, you know, very high level. Uh, we can just like drag and drop controls in and we have auto layout and all these like very nice high level tools uh, for us to use. But then you end up with code signing, which is you need to understand like what's a provisioning profile. You have to make a certificate mm -hmm. request. You have to understand, you know, all these different aspects of code signing, which are really, like you also say, kind of implementation details, right? Like yeah. there's no need for every single iOS developer to learn about these things really. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. 
All right, so um, let's hope that code signing is going to be uh, improved. But un until that happens, we we always have Fastlane, right? Which is which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So next up, we want to talk more specifically about what goes into building developer tools. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank our good friends at Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. Bitrise is a super nice and easy to use continuous integration service. So like we talked about, Fastlane is a great tool for automating all those tedious developer tasks. But you need somewhere to run it, and you need a nice stable platform where you can use things like Fastlane and other tools to verify that your app works as expected, that all the tests pass, and finally to automate things like releasing beta builds and shipping to the App Store. And that's exactly what Bitrise provides. With Bitrise, integrating Fastlane is just as easy as clicking a few buttons in a super nice web UI. And that's because the way Bitrise works is very modular. You construct workflows for each app with these separate building blocks. Each step can do things like test your app or run your favorite linter, update CocoaPods, build your app and do code signing. And there's also first-class built-in support for running Fastlane as well. So by moving your builds to Bitrise, you can automate so much more and you can avoid having only a single developer who's always doing the builds on their local machine or run your own CI on a Mac mini under someone's desk, which we all know it's very error prone. So I really recommend that you try Bitrise today. It's what I personally use for all of my new projects. And the good news is that if you go to bitrise.io slash Swift by Sundell, you can get started completely for free. You can even run up to 200 builds per month completely for free as well. So make sure to use that URL as it directly helps support the show. So once again, that's bitrise.io slash Swift by Sundell to get started with awesome continuous integration with Fastlane support completely for free. Thank you so much to Bitrise for their continued support of this show, which really helps making all of Swift by Sundell possible. So um, speaking about building developer tools and open source, uh, this is a question that I get quite a lot from people in the community. It's like, how do I come up with ideas for the developer tools that I build? And kind of why am I focused on building tools? Because just like you, I love building my own tools and uh, I love automating things and uh, yeah, trying to increase my productivity in many aspects with tools. So uh, what's that like for you? Kind of why, why did you choose to kind of segue instead of focusing on building apps purely, just segueing into more just becoming a tools developer and, and building developer tools? Uh -huh. Well, in my case, it just happened. Like, it was not a conscious decision. <laughs> right. I, you know, suddenly you spend more and more time on GitHub and suddenly you don't get any coding done anymore and you're just on GitHub replying to GitHub issues and PRs. Um, but your question on, like, why, why should developers kind of, like, work on their own tools and how do you come up with ideas, I feel like it's really just you, you constantly come up with your own ideas, but a lot of people are, again too busy to actually work on those, right? You have this mm -hmm. deadline, you want to build this feature and something gets in your way and you're just annoyed by it. But at this point, maybe like take the time and step back and be like, oh, maybe that's something I can write a tool for. And maybe it takes like two hours to build and it's going to save me and a lot of other people a lot of time in the future. So I feel like giving yourself the space and the time to be creative and like build something yourself um, is helpful. And I run into this myself also. Sometimes I just want to get something done 
and then I'm just annoyed by something. Yeah. But again, if you take the time, I, I, I really believe that's also why so many cool projects and startups start in college, because that's when people usually don't have as many strict deadlines and they have the freedom to just hack on something. And they also got the enthusiasm, right? The enthusiasm, yeah. And, and basically it was the same with Fastlane. Like I built it during college. It was actually my bachelor thesis. And I just had a lot of time to work on it. Yeah, that's really cool. I definitely agree that it's a lot about just taking the time because so many developers, uh, myself included, <laughs> uh, complain about tech debt, right? Like, oh, we have tech debt in this project. Oh, you know, we have this legacy system that we have to deal with. And for me, uh, building tools is kind of the opposite. It's almost like a tech loan, <laughs> right? Where you're mm. kind of giving yourself time in the future by investing or more more than a loan it's maybe more like an investment right the tech investment mm -hmm. and you're investing some little time then to save yourself pain and struggling in the future yeah yeah so we now know that building tools is good <laughs> right mm -hmm. like in general but why open source things like why did you decide that fastlane should be an open source project instead of kind of keeping it to yourself i had a few reasons for that. Uh, one was that I I was very heavily inspired by CocoaPods and Orta. Um, I, I really loved using CocoaPods. I was really amazed by the community. Um, and that was like four years ago, right? Yeah. And I wanted to kind of like build this thing that's CocoaPods but for deployment. And seen from today's perspective, I think it worked out. And um, also one more selfish reason was that I want that a lot of people use Fastlane so I get... I can get to talk at conferences. Ah, oh, nice. I, back then I didn't speak at conferences, but I was like, well, attending conferences is fun, but speaking at conferences is more challenging, so I want to do that. So that was one of the reasons. Hey, let's build a foundational tool, and maybe that will enable me to speak at conferences. Turns out, yes, that's that's very accurate. Um, <laughs> so I got I got very lucky with this one. Nice. It sounds like this, uh, you know, when people say, step one, build a tool, step two, open source, step three, profit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so when it comes to like the user's perspective on why something should be open source or what's the advantage of it being open source, I think one good example of uh, that we experienced in the iOS community recently is probably BodyBuild, right? Like if you use BodyBuild, uh, it's closed source, it's hosted only. Now that they get acquired and they have to rewrite stuff uh, as part of Apple, you're kind of like stuck with this closed source service now. And let's say there is a change that you need to make there's probably nothing you can do nowadays. Yeah. If it's open source, if something happens to the maintainer or to the tool or something else, you can always just fork it. You, you have a copy, you can modify it. And I feel like it's very important for tools because like you might have a very custom setup. You need this very custom solution. And if it's open source, you can just fix stuff yourself. And that's really powerful, not being dependent on a company. Absolutely. And honestly, I think this is sometimes a little bit overlooked when we look at these, especially bigger open source projects. If you look at something like Fastlane, CocoaPods and stuff like that, sometimes we can fall into the trap of kind of looking at them as products, right? Where uh, Fastlane is a product, which means I, as the user, if I run into a problem, I'm just going to ask for support, right? I'm going to contact the customer support, which in this case mm -hmm. is GitHub issues. And the fact that you can actually clone the project, you can debug it, you can make modifications, and you can either maintain those modifications yourself or send them upstream with a pull request is really, really powerful. Yeah. And it's, I can even see like dependencies of Fastlane, right? If we use other tools, 
we submitted so many pull requests to those other Ruby gems that, that we have as dependencies. If those weren't open source, we just couldn't use them because we needed to customize something. Exactly. So uh, one thing that uh, can happen is that you create a open source project or a tool or something like that, and it becomes popular, just like what happened to Fastlane. And you get this huge influx of, uh, of users, which is really cool. Maybe you get to speak at conferences if you're lucky, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but then you also have to deal with, uh, with kind of keeping up with this, with this project. You have to manage issues and pull requests and, and the community. So... One thing that I think Fastlane has done incredibly well is actually scaling this up, like actually enabling people to work on Fastlane as a community. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Like, how did you enable this project to really scale to this, to this magnitude? That's a really difficult topic. There's no perfect solution, obviously. Uh, the way I dealt with it was that while I was still in college, I noticed that suddenly I spent like, Basically, it was a full-time job just to respond to GitHub issues. It slowly became more and more work. Yeah. And you soon realize, yeah, there's no way I can do it by myself. Um, so you have to make it easy for people to contribute. You have to have the documentation in place. You have to have a, perf like a really good CI setup. You have to have automated tests, obviously. Um, I also have like a fast in Slack group uh, where people can communicate. Um, but you, there's also other actions you can take. Like one example would be the plugin system we talked about before, because suddenly you can move the responsibility of an implementation from Fastlane itself to an external plugin. Yeah. Uh, so that definitely helped. One thing I'm a little, let's say sad about is like, uh, let's say that, let's call it the churn rate of contributors. Mm -hmm. I feel like there was not a single contributor who stayed for more than like two years or something. And uh, I don't think I'm doing like something really wrong, but like it's tricky to justify spending time on a project that's open source without getting paid, right? Usually yeah. people do it during their free time as a hobby. Exactly. Um, so that's one thing where maybe someone else has like better ideas on how to keep those contributors. Um, because like I feel like a lot of people jump off at some point, uh, which which I also understand, obviously. But that, that's probably an area where fasting could do better. Yeah. I guess a lot of people like the entry point they have to a uh, open source project is that they either kind of run into an issue themselves or maybe they find like a starter task or something on the project and they, they want to help out, right? They want to help out fixing this issue or implementing some new feature or something like that. But once that's done, you know, once you've, once you've kind of cleared that goal, like, will you stick around? That's a big question, right? I mean, I think that's, that's a very good point. I think that's 100% accurate. In particular, yeah, people use Fastlane, they see an error, Fastlane shows similar GitHub issues as part of the stack trace. Yeah. And yeah, people just dive in and submit a one-off PR kind of thing. All right. So we mentioned uh, now a couple of times the plugin architecture and the benefits of it. So now probably there's a couple of people, including myself, thinking, hmm, how could I implement a plugin architecture for one of my projects and uh, have those benefits as well? So what do you think kind of goes into designing a good plugin architecture or a good plugin API for a project? Yeah, so this obviously very, very much depends on what kind of tool or product you have, right? Like with Fastlane, it was pretty clear that Fastlane has this concept of actions or integrations where you say upload an app to, app to the App Store or take screenshots. So it's pretty clear that the plugin would basically be one or multiple of those actions. 
and you can distribute that somehow. Um, so for Fastlane, that made it very easy. For other tools, for example, CocoaPass, they also have a plugin architecture, but they they had they had to build it differently because they don't have actions. They have it's just like a dependency manager, right? Yeah. So from what I know, the way they build it is that they have certain hooks where plugins can be called. So for example, like after resolving the dependencies or after updating the Xcode project. So you kind of just listen to events and then do something. Yeah. Um, but again, like it very much depends on the on the product. Yeah. I think in general, like having these clearly defined hooks can be a good way to get started. But like you mentioned, depends on if it's like something where you have clear actions that you can just resolve and call or whether you need to hook into like the system as a whole, right? And one way we can kind of look at it in in a sense is when we are building a new view controller in, in an iOS app, we are kind of in a way writing a plugin uh, for iOS. Like we are implementing a, a plugin in a way that we're then injecting and we get hooks like view did load, view will appear and we can run our logic, right? Yeah. So if we can define a similar API for our kind of plugins, that could be really powerful, right? I think that's a really interesting way to put it, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right, so uh, for our final main topic, we want to talk a little bit about third-party SDKs uh, because this is something I know that you've written about and you've uh, done a lot of thinking about kind of what's important to think about when you are entrusting a third-party SDK with the kind of keys to the castle to your app. So uh, tell us a little bit about that, Felix. Like, uh, what's your thinking around trusting third-party SDKs and what, what can be some things to be good to keep in mind? Yeah, so one thing I was aware of back from my iOS development days when I was still young uh, is that SDKs are often closed source, right? They're just distributed as binaries and you cannot really look inside of them. And as most iOS developers are aware of is that those SDKs are loaded into your runtime, into your application, meaning that those SDKs get access to all the permissions you, your app has access to. So for example, if your app has access to location data, the SDK get, gets access to location data. It, same for photos, for iCloud, for keychain data even. So. I, I knew that it was kind of risky when it comes to that. And so over the last few months, I did more and more research on like, wait, how bad is it really? And turns out it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> one, one example also is that SDKs, yeah, they are not sandboxed at all. Uh, yeah. And also they don't run in the networking sandbox. Like why does an SDK have access to any host? And um, yeah, it's actually really scary to think about. You think it would be technically feasible for SDKs to be completely sandboxed? That would require like some kind of cross-process communication, right? Yes, uh, I believe that would be the ideal, obviously. Um, but you're right; it will introduce overhead. But like the more and more professional iOS development processes get, my feeling is that that's probably where we have to, because we already kind of have that with the different targets that you have of an iOS app, right? Like I haven't, yeah build iOS apps in a while, but from what I understand, if you have like a today widget, you still, you have the same problem where you have multiple processes, you have to communicate somehow, and it's very limited on how you can do that, right? Yeah, And each exactly. has its own sandbox, yeah. Yeah, iOS is definitely moving in general more towards like a kind of a services architecture, if you will, right? Where each target can kind of provide things into the system. Yeah, I could see that happening for SDKs, but obviously that's going to take a while because if you think about, let's say, crash reporting, 
um, as soon as the crash report is sandboxed, it's not going to be useful. <laughs> right, exactly. It can only detect its own crashes, <laughs> yeah. not, uh, not ones in your app. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that all the things that you have in your app, like all the objects, all the permissions, everything you have is accessible because it's natively running code, just like your own code, right? So what's kind of the decision-making process there? Like, like how do you decide whether or not to actually trust an SDK? Yeah, that's super difficult. So one is obviously just your gut feeling. You already have a feeling about certain SDKs. Some companies are sketchy. Uh, maybe you don't trust them. If your manager is pushing you to install this tracking SDK, like push back if you don't agree with it. Um, yeah. Because sometimes decisions are being made high up. Sometimes it's the engineer. Like I always use an example that crash reporting usually is something the developer integrates. Like it's not the manager telling you to add a crash reporter. But if it comes to um, targeting and ads and like all that, usually you get told what to use. Yeah. Uh, so make sure that those SDKs are reasonable, right? And uh, so that's one thing. And then um, another thing is obviously, is the SDK open source or closed source? It is a difference. Um, so even if you trust the company, it can still be malicious in some way. And if it's open source, you have a better chance of detecting it. Um, one example was that in CocoaPods is that you could distribute binaries through unencrypted HTTP, uh, meaning that everybody can do man-in-the-middle attacks without you knowing. So as part of my SDK research, I actually submitted pull requests to patch those things. And now CocoaPod shows you a big, big, big warning. It's like, hey, this download was done through unencrypted HTTP. Uh, this is no good. Please reach out to the pod offer, the pod owner, and tell them to fix this. Right. Uh, that's, uh, that's really, really good. And again, it ties back to the fact that even though it may seem harmless, it can really, really be very harmful, right? Yeah. And the reason why I even looked into all of this is because I, I learned more about how men in the middle attacks work. And I was like, wait, like, that's scary. Like, can I apply this to iOS somehow? And in the beginning, I thought about, you know, hijacking a single iOS developer, basically. But I realized... A much bigger target area is targeting SDKs because then you don't target a single developer or a single app, but you target thousands of apps at the same time. So yeah. by targeting one very commonly used SDK, you can reach like almost all iPhone apps, basically. Um, so it's much more efficient if you want to steal data to do that. Yeah, exactly. And then you are natively in that app or in many, many different apps, right? And uh, we all know that a lot of apps, you need to ask for, you know, elevated privileges and things like that. And yeah, then you have that malicious code running in so many different apps. And we've seen this happen with things like Xcode Ghost and, and all these kind of things where developers are targeted. Yep, yep. And it's a big it's a big issue. And I, I feel like there is going to be more and more incidents when it comes to those things, because I was surprised to how easy it is to do such an attack. One thing that I know GitHub is doing, I don't know if they're doing it yet for Swift code or iOS projects, but they're doing it, I know, for things like Ruby gems and things like that. They are uh, detecting security issues and then giving you warnings and things like that. Do you think like some kind of system like that, where uh, basically the, the knowledge about known security issues is shared, uh, could be like a solution where you can blacklist certain versions or certain like commit hashes of a certain uh, project or a certain CocoaPod? Yes, that's definitely helpful. And I'm sure GitHub will be pushing that more and more. Uh, it's really good that they're doing that, but it will not fix all the issues. It's still, uh, if it's still a closed source SDK, maybe it's not malicious, but it's actually just like really bad and does a lot of 
swizzling and like tracks data that you don't want to track kind of thing. So it doesn't solve all the issues. I would say the GitHub integration is mostly about actual bugs and security uh, problems of certain dependencies. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but being an open source framework definitely helps. And also for me, when I look at uh, including like a third party library or something like that, I also look at the complexity because uh, with the kind of third party code, uh, it doesn't come for free. You know, it's you can't just write pod X in your pod file, pod install and boom, you're ready to go. But uh, you're you're also taking on some responsibilities there. And for me, having like a smaller project that I'm using is usually easier because then I can kind of look through the code a little bit. It also has like a smaller area of problems. And it's also more likely that I can actually solve some issues myself if the code base is smaller and more approachable. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And a lot of developers, uh, I feel like especially developers uh, that just got started with engineering, they tend to be more okay with adding more dependencies. And I was the exact same way um, even with Fastlane itself, it has more dependencies than I would want to have today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, don't get me wrong. It's a great way to get started, but it's also good, I think, to always, um, you know, review what kind of dependencies you have and also, um, you know, treat them kind of as your own code a little bit. Mm -hmm. All right. So what do you say? Should we uh, move on to our Q&A section and answer some questions from the audience? Let's do it. Let's do it. So our first question here comes from Andrew Lord, and he wants to know if we have any advice for people creating SDKs or developer tools about sharing and growing them to the scale that Fastlane has become. So basically, Felix, how do you become a famous developer? <laughs> um, I think there are a few angles to that. Um, the first off is obviously build something that's solving a problem. I think sometimes people build something that's nice, but if something's just nice to have, obviously it's not going to be as successful as something that's solving an actual issue. Uh, I would say CocoaPods is a great example where before CocoaPods, you had to do all these manual steps and compile flags and like all these things to get an SDK to work, right? Yeah. CocoaPods drastically simplified that. Um, same with Fastlane, there was no good alternative except for doing stuff manually. Um, so that's obviously the, the foundation that you need to build something that people are going to use. Uh, when it comes to like actually growing and scaling, um, Twitter was obviously the main medium for me to like tell people about it, that I built this thing. And then back then, you know, I didn't have any Twitter followers. I just started with it. And so I relied on other people, let's call them influencers, like Orta, to retweet some of my tweets or quote my tweets. Um, so otherwise I would have never reached anyone. And at the same time, one thing that is kind of like a running joke for me is uh, iOS Dev Weekly, which uh, I think they have like 40,000 subscribers. And uh, Dave was actually covered fasting tools multiple times, like different, different areas. Uh, and that was definitely, definitely helpful uh, because it's being read by so many engineers and also a lot of people working at Apple. Um, so that was definitely helpful getting into iOS Dev Weekly. Yeah, I can I can imagine. And uh, for me, like I joked in the beginning there, like how does one become a famous developer? <laughs> because I know that a lot of people, a lot of people, first of all, ask me this question, like how do I reach more people? How do I spread my my tool? Or how do I make my blog get more readers and things like that? And the thing I always say is, 
Well, first of all, I think it's important, like you also mentioned in the beginning, to maybe not attack this problem with the angle of how do I get a lot of users, but rather yes. how do I build something great, right? Yeah. Like how do yeah. I build something that's super useful, that people really like, that people want to share? Because, you know, yeah. you can ask people to retweet or, you know, spread it and things like that. But at the end of the day, if the project is not good, no one is going to do that anyway, right? So it's all about kind of the quality of the project. And here it comes down a lot, I think, to uh, kind of uh, generalizing the problem a little bit. So with Fastlane, that's exactly what you did. And with CocoaPods as well, like we mentioned, where you could have just built automation just for you, right? Or just for your specific use case. But you generalized it and you made it so that the potential kind of audience is now much, much larger, right? So it's a much, much larger likelihood that someone will pick this up, be excited about it and, and share it. So I think that starting with the angle of building something really great and, and honestly just keeping at it, like that's the hard part. Like when you, like you said, when you had very few followers and it was the same for me when I started blogging, you know, no one was reading my blog, you know? We talked about this on, on the last episode as well with, with Sean Allen that, you know, in the beginning, everyone has an audience of zero. And instead of focusing too much on that and getting kind of demotivated by that, focusing on just like keeping your head down, keep working, keep iterating and trying to build something really good. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really good way to put it. Uh, also what helped a lot, and uh, I see that you do that as well, is just like be very personal. When people ask you questions or like um, just like engage with people and engage not as in like big corporates, I want to drive the engagement, but just like, you right. know, be a human being, help people out, uh, talk with people at conferences, reply to tweets kind of thing. And it sounds obvious, but a lot of people also don't do that. Um, another thing when it comes to like, just, um, you know, for those people who want to become famous really fast, um, one thing that's also helpful is uh, piggybacking on something else. So, uh, for example, instead of building your own thing from scratch, you can either like contribute to something existing, obviously, like even CocoaPods is a good example where there's not a lot of people working on it right now, uh, but every iOS developer is using it. So it's kind of like super high impact um, to work on CocoaPods. Yeah. But uh, another approach is to piggyback by like building something on top of something else. Like a Fastlane or CocoaPods plugin is a good example um, where uh, you you might be able to reach a lot of people, but you don't have to reinvent something completely new. Yeah, exactly. You're building on top of an existing infrastructure, which is also really great for getting started in general, right? Not only for the kind of audience perspective or, or getting things uh, out and making yourself heard. It's also great for just, you know, getting started technically as well, building yeah, on an yeah. existing foundation. All right, really cool. Um, so next up, we have a question here from JC, and uh, he wants to know what's the future of Ruby for iOS tools. So I know that CocoaPods and Fastlane and many many other uh, iOS developer tools are written in Ruby, uh, but now of course we have Swift, we have Swift scripting, and we have you know the Swift package manager, and we have a lot of things that you know people are more now looking to the same language that they build apps with to actually also build their tools. So how do you personally feel? about this like are you still sticking with ruby is that your language of choice uh, and what do you think uh, the future is going to be for it for ios tools yeah so fastlane was only written in ruby just because all the other tools were written in ruby back in the days that was like four years ago um so in particular cocopods i was able to reuse um some of their classes for handling xcode projects and at the same time also 
uh, Nomad Tools by Matt Thompson, in particular Shenzhen, which is a tool to build iOS apps, like to compile your app. Uh, so I was able to reuse those things. That was the only reason why Fastlane is written in Ruby. Back then, I had literally zero Ruby experience when I started Fastlane. So I took the foundation of CocoaPods and Shenzhen and looked at how they solve certain problems. Uh, but to your question, like, what's the future of Ruby for iOS tools? Um, obviously, it's gonna be less and less. Like, Ruby's gonna go away at some point uh, because it does add another dependency. Um, but it's not gonna be instantly, right? Like, as long as the Swift package manager is not useful, we'll still be able. We'll still have to use CocoaPods, obviously. Um, same for Fastlane. Like, until Apple helps us out and like actually provides some tools to automate stuff. Uh, people are going to keep using Fastlane. And Ruby also has some really interesting characteristics when it comes to building tools. For example, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these Ruby tools, they use the same structure where in CocoaPods you have a pod file, in Fastlane you have a fast file, right? Because it's relatively easy to build DSLs, the main specific languages, in Ruby, right? Yes, yes, that is accurate. So for those who don't know, uh, I was really fascinated the first time I experienced it uh, the pod file, the fast file, these are just Ruby files. Like, they're just scripts. Yeah. And because Ruby syntax is so nice, and obviously Swift syntax is also nice. I, I think <laughs> I say this at this podcast, but... Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, Ruby syntax is so nice, you, you, you can just bend everything into, the, into whatever you want, means that you can have these really nice DSLs, and people don't even know that these are scripts. And I think the pod file, I mean, they changed the structure now to be a little more structured, but uh, back in the days, uh, the pod file was really just like pods and then a string, like the name of the pods. And like most people, at least I, didn't know that this is actually just a Ruby script and pod is a method and the string is a parameter. It's it's fascinating. It is. And so I took the same approach for Fastlane, where it's actually a really nice lane syntax where you define the different lanes at different environments and you call the actions. But what's really nice about it is that it's so simple, but then if somebody wants to extend it, they can just write any scripts there. They can write any code in there. They can do network requests or access the file system, can access any other Ruby method. Um, so it's really powerful. And I feel like with Swift, you can achieve something similar. And we have Swift support for Fastlane, meaning that you can write your fast file in Swift, actually. Yeah. So uh, that's a new feature. It's actually still in beta. Uh, because there's still a few things we need to finish up when it comes to plugin support, but it, it works fine. You have a fastfile.swift. Uh, you can write your fast file in Xcode with autocomplete and everything, um, but it's not as flexible and not as nice because obviously Swift has types and Ruby doesn't. So it's a little more strict. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to adhere to a bit more rules than in Ruby. In Ruby, yeah. it's more like a little bit like the Wild West, which is really <laughs> beneficial for these things. It is, it is. All right. So uh, next question is going to be really interesting, I think. And this one comes from Shashikant Yagtap. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And he wants us to talk about the future of Fastlane tools with the new App Store Connect API. Does Fastlane need to be rewritten completely to support the new API? So first off, tell us a little bit about this new App Store Connect API, because this is something that's brand new. And I know that Fastlane could really benefit from. Yeah, so I got to circle back a little bit more on how Fastlane even works because like, there was no API until now. So in the very beginning, four years ago, Fastlane was basically running a headless web browser and it was like 
clicking buttons based on CSS selectors. So that sounds fun. And every time Apple changed the design, which happens like once every eight years, um, <laughs> they, would, they would break. So that, that was the first implementation. And that was actually really good to have a prototype running and get the first version out soon. Yeah. And then obviously that's not perfect. Like having a headless web browser is not beautiful. So I started looking into the network requests that are being sent by iTunes Connect or Apps Connect now, the Apple Developer Portal and Xcode. And so Apple actually did a really good job separating the front end and the back end. So the uh, App Store Connect API is using web objects. The Apple Developer Portal is also using web objects as a back end. So I just reverse engineered that and implemented API endpoints. In the beginning, I kind of like hard coded them into Fastlane. And then I started working with Stefan Natchev, one of our contributors, and he actually works on the Fastlane team now at Google. And we had this idea of building a standalone tool called Spaceship. Right. That you can check out on spaceship.airforce. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, and the best thing is this domain is now owned by Google in Mountain View. Oh, nice. <laughs> and so um, turns out, yeah, when you sign up for a domain that ends with .airforce, you have to confirm that you have that you don't claim to have anything to do with the military. Oh, really? <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> yeah. So Spaceship is a standalone tool. All it does, it basically... Imagine kind of like core data, but as a backend, it's the Apple Developer Portal and App Store Connect. So you can kind of like just interact with Ruby objects and say, I want to list all apps that start with the following app identifier. And from all these apps, for each of them, mm -hmm. go through them and download all the screenshots and then maybe create a new push certificate for that. So it allows you to do those things in like nice Ruby objects. And then there's always like a dot save method where you can kind of like push the changes back to the backend. Nice. And so that's spaceship. And the cool thing is it's used by all the fast name tools, but it's also used by other companies. Like for example, let's say Uber has like a really sophisticated deployment process. They're most likely not going to use the fast name tools themselves, but they're going to use Spaceship. So Spaceship is used by everybody. Most people just don't know about it. Yeah, it's another one of those benefits of a plugin-driven architecture, even though this is not technically a plugin, I guess. But uh, it's the same like when I talked to Tanner Nelson about Vapor and how Vapor is just a like a big, big uh, group of different frameworks and services that are just like composed together to form the end product. And that way you can just like cherry pick like the ones you want to use in case you can't use like the most high-level tool. Yeah, I think it's great. And I constantly get emails from Vapor about new repos being created. I, I somehow ended up being in the organization, I think after contributing some emojis to the README. <laughs> <laughs> nice, that's the best way. Yeah. All right, so we have Spaceship, right? And it's being used by all the, the fasting tools. And now there's this App Store Connect API, which obviously is going to be really useful for us. And we are going to have a public statement soon, as soon as the App Store Connect API launches, because Apple just pre-announced it, right? It's not available yet. Yeah. Um, but we already started working on it. We already started working on implementation and we already built a mocking server that basically pretends to be an App Store Connect API. Awesome. So we, we have all that, um, but the way it's going to be implemented is that Apple asks you to create your own private key to access the API and these keys have to be rotated. So it's basically like code signing, but for APIs. Um, so that's going to be fun. And because of that, we still, <laughs> because the App Store Connect API only covers about 10% of what Fastlane needs, uh, we will not be able to only use the App Store Connect API. We still need to fall back to the other one. 
So one of the main advantages of using the apps.connect API is that we don't need to ask for the user's credentials. We don't need the two-factor authentication token. We don't need a password. We just get a token, right? Right. Um, but because we still need to fall back to the old APIs, we will need to still ask for those credentials. So for now, the apps.connect is not gonna, the apps.connect API is not gonna provide any big benefits for fast end users. But as soon as there's, there are more and more API endpoints, we want to add a flag that says, hey, use the apps.connect API if possible. As soon as the apps.connect API is like really stable and we verified it works well, it's gonna be on by default. And then I could imagine in about one year, there's going to be a new flag that's going to be like force apps.connect API. So this would be for companies that only want to use the official API uh, for compliance reasons or whatever, right? Um, because mm -hmm. I could yeah. see Apple maybe potentially enforcing the official API use once they have it. Because right now they cannot really say, hey, fasting people, stop doing what you're doing. Um, because if they did that, the whole community would be like, I mean, yeah, that's great and everything, but like, what are we supposed to do now? So they have to <laughs> exactly. provide an alternative first before they can shut down a third-party tool. Yeah, and I mean, that's great also, right? Because now you have an official API to talk to, and once the whole migration is going to be over, I'm sure the pull request to delete all of that uh, you know, uh, web navigation code and all that stuff and all that request handling is going to be a nice pull request. Yes, yes, I'm really excited about it. And I, it seems like Apple did a really good job on the apps.connect API. Like, they take it very seriously, and the way it's built is like, it's, it's, it's really good. And uh, so to answer the question there, if Fastlane needs to be completely rewritten, I guess that's uh, not true then, because since you have the spaceship abstraction in the middle, you'll be able to just update spaceship and then Fastlane will just kind of keep working, right? Yep. Talk about tech debt, right? This is another example <laughs> was like, oh, we fought ahead. And so it's actually, it's going to be really nice for us. Yes. So it will be completely seamless for the user. We don't have to rewrite Fastlane. We just have to rewrite those new API points. That's awesome. And it's, again, one of those things where uh, you thought ahead, right? And sometimes when you are thinking ahead, you can get a little bit of pushback where people are saying, why are you creating this extra protocol, this extra ab abstraction? Just, uh -huh. uh, you know, use the concrete implementation, right? Yeah. Uh, but then in the future, you really thank yourself for actually having gone that extra mile and creating those abstractions. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this case, it was all Stefan Nachev. I didn't do a lot. <laughs> All right, uh, we're gonna round off here with a question from my good friend, Mr. Guy Rambo. And he asks, what motivated your recent focus on iOS privacy and security? And what's the most common mistake that developers make in this area? So we already touched on kind of why you got into uh, security research and why that's exciting for you. Uh, but the second part of the question there, I think is really exciting, uh, or really interesting, which is kind of, what's the most common mistake people make, you think? Yeah, what's, what's good to, to watch out for? I would say this goes nicely with what we talked about a few minutes ago about people just adding new dependencies to the project, right? As you said, like, they don't come for free. Like, you add code or closed source binaries to your application. Yeah. Um, so I, I would definitely say people just adding dependencies is probably the number one. I don't know if we can call it a mistake, but, like, number one thing people do that might impact privacy and security. Um, and then obviously the permission system on iOS is interesting. I feel like a lot of bigger apps do a pretty good job with it where they would only ask for permission that they actually need, but obviously some apps may not do a good job. Like I, I saw apps, I think it was Instagram where if you don't give them access to your camera, 
then they also don't allow you to access your photo library and post a picture. Meaning, as soon as you don't give them access to your camera, you cannot post anything at all. Um, like Things like that shouldn't be the case because the user should be able to choose, hey, does Instagram have access to my camera or not? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that uh, the, the dependency problem is definitely a thing. Uh, it may not, like you say, not be just like, you can't just say dependencies are bad. That's not true. But it's it's about picking the right ones, right? And mm-hmm. being being mindful about what the dependencies might be able to do. Uh, and the second thing that I want to bring up also is kind of just basic kind of understanding, which I know that for a long time I didn't have. Like I didn't know what the implication was, for example, of including a inline string with a with a key right with a secret key just as an inline string that ends up in the string pool and then you can just read it like almost Mm -hmm. like like pure text you know Mm -hmm. and uh, things like that just like these basic uh, principles of kind of encryption and you don't have to become like a encryption expert but just kind of reading up on some really basic things and some do's and don'ts uh, when it comes to like how do you store secret in your app how do you implement something like ssl pinning which might sound you know really scary and really complicated but once you dive into it it's not that bad you know it's uh, there's a lot of frameworks and libraries <laughs> but there's also a lot of tutorials and things that you can follow so i, I would say just like the the main uh, mistake that people make is just maybe not actually focusing so much on security and focusing on the ui focusing on animations focusing on shipping and those things are really important too but sometimes it's good to just take a couple of days step back and, and review the security of your app as well yeah, and definitely, as you say, like it's like um, as an engineer, you have to, you usually have a manager, and if you work on like improving the security, some managers might not, you know, see the progress as much. Yeah. Um, like I, I don't know. I haven't worked with a lot of managers, and I would say in San Francisco, people take it pretty seriously. But I could imagine at some agencies, maybe they're like, oh, well. What did you do? Why didn't you ship any customer value? We cannot charge for this kind of thing. And that's obviously a very bad sign. That's a lot of red flags. Yes, the same classic as like the customers, they don't want to pay for unit tests, right? (laughs) Which in that sense is a lot about just kind of educating the customer about what's really required and, uh, you know, making sure you get time to spend on those important things. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, before we go, we actually just have a little bit of a funny question from our good friend, uh, Matthias Chetter. And he wants to know, Felix, how do you nail perfect Twitter profile pictures? What's your secret? It's a very, very serious question. Uh, I spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about it. Um, it all started out by this one tweet or blog post I read by Ryan Hoover, the founder of Product Hunt. And he said, never change a profile picture. Mm-hmm. And he made a good point. He wrote about how people usually don't recognize names randomly on the internet, but they recognize faces. And that's true. People are designed to recognize faces. So uh, what, what happens is that you kind of want to, you know, you see your face on GitHub, on Twitter, on your blog, you have it like everywhere, right? And if you want to have this recognition um, value, like if you want people to recognize y- your face, you, you have to have the face. And if you change it, even if it's the same face, it's not going to be parsed as such immediately if people don't know you. So anyway, that was a good point. I was like, I agree with that. But also, my profile picture was from when I was, I don't know, 17 or something. So (laughs) I wanted to uh, change that. And back then, there was already a professional photo that that was being taken. And so what I did is I just went to the same photographer and took the same picture and like a similar t-shirt and similar hairstyle and so on. And turns out, I changed my picture. 
most people didn't know this, I changed it. A few yeah. people tweeted about it. Um, and that's actually really funny. So I started implementing continuous delivery for my profile picture now. Uh, so every second year, that's amazing. Every second year, I'm going to the same spot with the same background. I'm gonna take the same picture. It's the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Are you worried that the T-shirt won't fit you, or you won't be able to get the same T-shirt again <laughs> in like ten years? Uh, I, I'm very lucky. It's like a plain gray T-shirt, so I should be okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. All right. Uh, so speaking about Twitter, speaking about profile pictures and things like that, uh, if people want to follow you and find you online, uh, where can they go? So Twitter is obviously a good spot at KrauseFX. Um, same for my blog, KrauseFX.com. Um, and I guess my GitHub profile, which is github.com slash KrauseFX. I got the same name everywhere. Nice. That's good. That's another another part of the strategy, right? Use the same name everywhere, and it will be very, way easier when eventually one day you're going to be on a podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, that's definitely something. Make sure to choose a name uh, where you got the domain and everything. Uh, I got a little unlucky that it's my last name. I wish it was my first name. Uh, so when right. people meet with conferences, sometimes they would say, "Oh, you're Kraus, right?" Uh, so oh, right. maybe find something with first name. Um, and yeah, I think. Wata probably got the best name. Four characters, he got the domain, he got the username, and so on. Yeah, he's got it all. He's golden. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so, Felix, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it was a true pleasure to talk to you, like always. Uh, and I know I'm going to see you soon at some really cool conferences. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a true pleasure. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and all the weekly Swift articles at swiftbysundell.com. Once again, big thanks to Bitrise for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check them out at bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell and uh, set it up with Fastlane and see how it goes. Uh, but most importantly, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. <laughs>